Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Despite the pandemic, Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. They will hold their next event in June of 2022. To support them, fans and artists have rallied together on their Kickstarter, which you can visit. The Kickstarter will run through February 2nd. Go to SoonerCon.com for more details. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. This show likes to focus on many things, one of which is independent film. I'm very passionate about independent film because it's one of the cases where us fans have really succeeded in becoming the creators that we want to become. And you can think of many independent filmmakers who might be your favorite. I'm hoping you're going to consider today's guest's to be candidates for that list, because I have full confidence that we're looking at future independent film stars. Let's get started with CJ and Larissa Julianis. On tap today, we have CJ and Larissa Julianis. How are you both doing this afternoon? Great. Thanks, hey, everybody. Thanks for having us, Aaron. Yes. Glad to have you guys here. I am so pumped about what we're going to be talking about here. You two are the filmmakers behind a new movie I've discovered called The Misadventures of Mistress Maneater. Uh, it's a film that fell in my lap and I've just, I've been wanting a film like this for a while. I've said this on the show several times. So to get into the basics and I'll let you guys pick up in just a minute. It's a, it's a rom-com, but it's not the kind of rom-com that was popular in the nineties. It's more of the, the indie type movie that we're seeing now. And keep going. Okay. Okay. So I thought we froze there for a minute. (laughs) And I'm just, it's, I think it's a relief because I could actually laugh, which I didn't usually do during comedies recently. Right. Yeah, that's the biggest, I, I'm a huge fan of romance as a genre of comedy, but I'm also extremely demanding. And the biggest issue I have with romantic comedies, They're which is funny. a totally different genre I find than from romance or from comedy, that isn't very romantic and they're not usually very funny. At least the, the current generation, I feel, of romantic comedies, um, hopefully that's changing now. A lot of the stuff that you find on Lifetime or Hallmark Channel or whatever, they, they tend to seem to recycle a lot of the plots. And the stakes in the plots are not very high. They're not very compelling characters. We, you can call the plot points 15 minutes before they happen, you know. And uh, Larissa and I, is be, being fans of movies and being producers of entertaining content in the past, we look at, you know, we watch this stuff, we look at each other, and, and we always say, we've seen this before. We've seen these characters before, these scenarios before. And Larissa said about tr- writing a script that had different characters that you've never seen and scenarios you've never seen. And the nice thing, or the interesting thing anyway, about rom-coms is they have two tropes that you always have to hit. You have to have the meat cute at the beginning, or in our case, it's the meat ugly. (laughs) And then at the end, they have to be together. But anything can happen in between. And what Larissa did, tell them what you did. 
Well, I want I write as, as a experienced and published playwright, as a screenwriter, I write what I want to see more of and feel that there's not enough out there. Uh, stories that are smart and funny and sexy and exciting, but also have high stakes and unusual Up the characters. That's the key. Upping the stakes. Exactly. So why do we so often get bored with the romantic comedy fair that's out there? Because the first thing you learn in film school as a screenwriter is always raise the stakes. So why why do we yawn at so many stories that are out there? Let's take, for example, a romantic comedy. Because if our two leads don't end up together, what happens? Okay, they go back to their vanilla lives and their two-dimensional characterizations. Oh, well. So that's not enough for me. In my case, with my leading character that I play, Ava doesn't get the guy, she's gonna die and she only has 30 days. So talk about high stakes. That makes you really want to see how is this impossible relationship, that's the other thing, a huge dichotomy between characters that you could never imagine could bridge the gulf between them. We have to bridge that as an audience member. I want to see how on earth is that ever going to happen? Yeah. And when things start going sideways in this plot, it becomes very much for the audience like, Okay, where is this going? Well, maybe I should give your listeners out there just the one sentence description. Hardly encapsulates encapsulates everything the movie is, but kind of at least points them in the right direction. So here's our description on Amazon, guys. With only 30 days to repay a massive loan, a disgraced art historian is forced into a scandalous scheme, win the heart of, and then extort the Episcopal priest, avoiding her like loose glitter. <laughs> now, what that ca character limited um, description, description doesn't say is that our art historian is disgraced because she now makes her living as a dominatrix, which she hates doing. And uh, the Episcopal priest is paying his bills as an underground MMA fighter. So there's a lot more going on than your typical rom Yes. Yeah, and, and just to take the these dominatrix for a minute here, mm -hmm. it's it's an amazing way of. Uh, this is very early. In, I'm not in the business of giving away spoilers, so this is not a spoiler. It's very early in the movie. Is that you're shocked to realize she's a dominatrix, and then five minutes later, it's like the least interesting thing about her. We've suddenly had so Thank much you. story dumped on our lap right away. Thank you. We appreciate that summarization. Yeah. Uh, the, the the character Larissa wrote, Ava Moriarty, is a very complex, multi-layered character. And oftentimes female characters are not given that kind of uh, literary respect in films or in anything for that matter. So um, the, the character is actually a metaphor. Um, the character does not want to be a dominatrix, but so many women in the world, you know, they're objectified. They're marginalized. Um, they, women are objects to a lot of men. And Ava's character, she's not going to accept that and, because she's so much more. And that's what we need to see more of. Uh, I've been married to Larissa for 16 years. We're going on 17. And the thing that I've seen over and over and over again is that Larissa deals with the kind of nonsense that you and I would never deal with as a woman. The harassment, the cat calls, the objectification. She goes out and gigs. And people feel like they can touch her and you know be overly familiar with her. And she tells me these horror stories, and it just more and more opens my eyes to like, oh my God, men are jerks. <laughs> you know? And we have to change that. But I think also as a woman, as you age, and especially as our culture is changing and waking up to these things, and now amores are shifting very rapidly. 
Um, I, I think as a woman, and I imagine as anybody, you're constantly reevaluating, who am I? How do I fit into this? How do I navigate people? What do I want? And this is the character with the, actually with the help of an Episcopal priest, the last person who ever wanted anything to do with her, learning about herself and healing herself and him in turn. Let me ask this, because this is something that came to my mind a couple of times, and it, you, I want to know if it's something that I'm just reading in or if it's something that you weaved into it, but I see a lot of anger in Ava, and I think that it's coming from a place of she's seeing these men in her life not be punished for these horrible things they've done, and yet, ironically, they're paying her to punish them for things she, they didn't do. That's, right. that's a huge twist. Of, and I just want to know how much that was playing into it, if at all. Oh, absolutely. That's part of it. Um, I, I think women in general, you know, as a whole, have a lot of anger about, you know, I mean, I, I, we get fan mail all the time from people around the world about our movie, you know, and people tell me, you know, back in the 1970s, this woman, she was earning all of the family's income, but she needed permission to be on her husband's credit card. Mm-hmm. Or she needed to prove that she was the, the breadwinner when, you know, that today that doesn't exist. But for a lot of women, that is still in the background of their heads. Of they are just now starting to approach the kind of privilege and opportunities that men have always had. So there's a real reason why women should be angry about a lot of things. Actually, there's a scene in the movie where Larissa dumps a misogynist in the lake. And if you recall the line before that, she says, the face of the world is changing and it doesn't look like you. And so that, that's literally a, a social commentary aspect of what this script contains. It's because there's a lot of literary aspects of metaphors and allegories in the script that we included. Now you can watch our movie and just be entertained by it because there's belly laughs in our movie. Uh, but if you're the type of movie viewer who likes to look for deeper meanings, they're all there. You just have to look for them. That's all. And to address that whole idea of the angry woman, I love that you saw so many layers in this because there are actually four different type of embodiments of the toxic masculinity of, um, you know, sexual intimidation, financial intimidation, these, these emotional four different, intimidation. Yeah, these, these four different types of uh, character characters that she has to deal with. The men in this movie are actually archetypes. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't, didn't want to ever create something that's just about, oh, women are angry and men are awful. That's the last thing I want to do. My goal is to truly show um, the evolution of the human spirit and what I hope it can be that we can reconcile our, our yin and our yang our feminine side and our masculine side, no matter what our gender is, to complete ourselves and to live in peace and harmony and acceptance. Um, and that's what I hope that I can show in this type of romance of two different people, both very, very strong personalities, um, both fearsome in their own ways, but learning tenderness and love and acceptance to they, so they can help heal each other. Yeah, ultimately, when you find the right person, you know, I've, I've, I've told this to many, many people, a lot of times, especially in the entertainment business, you're going to be kissing a lot of frogs, you know, and it, 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 it's difficult to find the people that you want to surround yourself up with. It's difficult to find the people 
who make you feel heard, understood, loved, accepted, all of those things. And that's what the script is about. Uh, a man and a woman having to do all kinds of different things to cope. But ultimately, when you find the person that you're supposed to be with, that's when things really start changing. And yeah. you, hopefully that you can be inspired to heal yourself as well. Yep. So when you're looking at this kind of a project, how does it start rolling? How do you get to the point where you say, there, I have this urge to tell the story. Let's put a script together. Let's start putting together a, an actual production company. Well, I, I have the boss yeah, this one. <laughs> this one was a very, very long evolution. And that's what I'd say to any um, artists out there with big dreams. The bigger the dream that you have, the longer it's going to take to set that foundation and for it to come to fruition. So please don't be discouraged when you have lofty dreams. Right. Just know if, if it's going to be done right, if it's going to be presented to the world in a way that is lasting, things will take longer than they quote unquote should. So in my case, I've um, sold my first script in 1998 of all times, um, a long time ago. Uh, so you know, had my first play published and internationally produced back in 2002. Um, have a screenwriting degree from 2003. Been you know stepped away from writing for a while to be an actor. Um, I you know appeared on NBC and CBS, and I'm also by my longest running client, which I'm very grateful for. I do motion capture for WB's franchises, gaming franchises like Mortal Kombat, Injustice, um, Harry Potter, Wizards Unite, so on and so forth. Um, so I did acting for a while, came back, and I still do acting, but I came back to writing as a more mature adult with more to express <laughs> and a different voice. Um, we did, we, uh, CJ has directed and together we've produced many of my uh, works for stage. But around 2012, because I had been working on the Mortal Kombat video games, I just, um, CJ suggested that I increase my value by taking martial arts. Started doing that. Um, and at the same time, I had watched and became a huge fan of the BBC Sherlock series that kind of put Benedict Cumberbatch on the map for a lot of us. And that was kind of the origin of these characters and this idea where we had this MMA fighter, and then we also had this dominatrix and these brilliant minds with um, you know, huge backstories and uh, also this comedy in a small town, gangsters and all this sort of thing. So that started coming together in 2014. It was, um, you can always tell when a script is written quickly or when it hasn't been simmered and worked on for many years. It, I think it shows. And I think it's, uh, that's similar to most of the work we see out there that's produced as product. It's quickly written without a lot of depth, without a lot of time to marinate. Um, I sent this script to studio readers for feedback, something I highly encourage aspiring screenwriters to do. Screenplayplaycoverage.com is where I went. And I got um, diverse feedback from a couple different readers on what worked, what didn't, and what really needed to be addressed. And they were right. Did I, could my ego deal with that at the time? No. <laughs> but you know, you work on other projects, you get a fresh set of eyes, you come back to it. So a year later, I decided to adapt it to a novel. And this was after we spoke to a filmmaker colleague who suggested, you know, this could be a book series kind of like True Blood. And if you get an audience for that, then it might be easier for you to produce this, uh, uh, you know, whether it's Across a long form series or a movie or whatever. Yeah, so 
So I decided to uh, write my first novel manuscript in many years um, and really built in a lot of the depth from the novels I love, a lot of genre novels, um, as well as all these notes that I'd been given. And of course you approach it writing it a very different way than you approach writing a screenplay. That gave me the opportunity to explore the true depth of these characters, how they feel, what they were thinking in a way you generally don't with screenplays. Um, worked on that for years, you know, pitched it, all this other, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, started getting some interest from people in the film industry, but it took years it and, takes and years many, many more stuff, drafts yeah. until it was ready and until we were ready in our lives, in our network. That's very, very important for any aspiring filmmakers out there. You might have all the genius and you might have all the talent, but you cannot do this alone. Uh, you can tell when a movie, especially in the independent world, was done by someone who's very talented and very hardworking, but all by themselves. Ultimately, it suffers. You, you, you cannot do everything. We did so many different things. We, we wore so many different hats. We continue to to this day as producer, obviously director, writer, actor, and made a lot of the props. Marketer, everything, <laughs> I mean, literally. Editor, but we had to have that wonderful team, great line producer, wonderful DP, composers, um, uh, production, designer to come along and really make it uh, the quality we wanted. We wanted to create something that was as close to studio quality as possible and it has as much story as possible. So here's what happened. Here's, here's how it really came to fruition. So Larissa told the story perfectly with her working on the script. So um, I often work uh, doing various different things and I went and I was uh, assistant director and actor on a web series and the director of photography is somebody that I knew peripherally. And after working together on this, I came home and I, on the drive home, it was about a two and a half hour drive. I realized I could work with this guy. So Larissa's script was done. And I said, hey, you know, I've got this script and maybe the, there's something here. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'll, I, I'm really busy. I'll read it in 10 minute increments. You know, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to get done with. To those aspiring screenwriters out there, everybody has yeah, a script. Yeah. They want everybody to read and it's usually tortured. So yeah. don't take it personally exactly. when people don't want to read your scripts. <laughs> so that's what he said to me. I was like, that's fine. Just read it when you can. So he called me the next day and he said, CJ, I started reading the script and I couldn't stop. I'll do whatever you want. So he was in. Now, at the same time, Larissa and I had flipped a house and we made a fairly significant profit on it. And instead of putting it into my IRA or investments or whatever it was, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna take this money and I'm gonna invest in Larissa and I. And I'm also going to, I love my wife, obviously very, very dearly. And I'm gonna help Larissa break through the glass ceiling by investing in this. We know we've done this work at a very high level before on a theatrical level. Uh, I'm gonna invest in us and we're gonna, we're gonna do this. I do not want my wife when she's 60 years old to look back and say, what if, why didn't I do this? So yeah, he kind of had to talk me into it. I had to talk, so I came <laughs> home and I said, honey, we're making your movie. And her reaction was. What? <laughs> he said, we're doing it. I had seen, my, my biggest concern was that we did it the right way. I had seen so many filmmakers over the years and creatives. Um, Crash you know, and burn. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times ego would get in the way or naivete and thinking, oh, this is gonna be great. This or, is gonna be so easy. it never got completed. 
whatever it is, I'm like, I do not want to fail at this. And I know it's going to be even harder than we could imagine to complete this at the level we wanted. And that's the other thing is that this is not a modest EDZ script. Most scripts you'll see a lot of cable movies. It's eight characters, um, three locations, You've relatively easy to shoot in three weeks, so on and so forth. As you, as I'm sure you noticed, Aaron, part of the reason there's such high production value is because we have a cast of 40 and endless, endless locations, yes. and there's mm-hmm. MMA fights, and we burn a church down. It, I don't write small. I think I was Cecil B. DeMille in a past life. So it is a very big, very ambitious feature, and it was important to me that it got done right. So the one well, of us, both of us, yeah. I mean, if our name is on something uh, with all of our theater work, anytime there was a production that said directed and produced by CJ Julianis or written by Larissa Julianis or starring Larissa Julianis or any of those things, we always had an eye that it had to imply quality. Yeah. But we, that was on a micro level. When you do a movie and you put it on these streaming platforms, it's not micro anymore. It's as macro as you can get. And it's going to reflect on you for many years to come. Yeah. And Once it's on film, it's forever. So, I mean, there's a lot of filmmakers who take a different approach of, oh, I just need to be able to say I directed a feature or I just need to get something, anything on my resume. And I think that there is a time and the place for that idea of, of, you know, okay, I just have to start from the bottom and get any opportunity I can to get experience. But then at a certain time, point in your career, discernment is the better part of valor, as they say. So the, when the first phone calls we made was to a couple, the Browns, they have two nine productions, um, to come alongside us. And Shannon Brown, um, he's been the star of many feature films and we've been an actor in many of his movies. Um, he was my second male lead. He played gay, the gay best friend. Fantastic. And uh, Suzette Brown was our line producer. Basically my right hand through all of pre-production, which became basically a full-time job almost for the three of us for eight months, securing locations, permits, right. SAG paperwork, um, insurance, uh, everything that we possibly needed. And that's another thing I'd say to filmmakers, give yourself plenty of time for pre-production when you're working on a budget, if you want the highest quality possible, because lots of things will fall through. And so many people will not care about your movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest challenges that we had is we had half of our finances fall out. And then it became, okay. We're gonna make do. We're gonna make do. And you know, even, even with losing half of our financing, we still made a movie that looks pretty expensive. So, you know, I mean, in the big scheme of things, it was not that expensive. But for us, mm-hmm. it was very expensive because we self-financed. I deliberately didn't want to go down the laundry list of how much <laughs> you guys have put into this and defining That's- each of the roles you had. Uh, because Larissa, TJ, you guys have each, I mean, almost every role in the movie you both touched in some way, shape, or form, sometimes minorly, sometimes majorly. That's a story in and of itself. I'm really interested, though, in the fact that you said you did it because you didn't want to look back and say, what if? And I find that's something so many artists never ask themselves. Regret is one of the emotions that we all deal with in personal ways. And uh, Larissa, luckily, her her whole upbringing was about was that was hammered into her head. You don't want to regret making a bad decision. Uh, that was not the case for me. Um, men are like dogs. We learn by repetition. 
<laughs> and making mistakes. So I, as a young man, I was a hellraiser. I was in the military. I did all kinds of, you know, crazy, stupid stuff, things I can't talk about. But my life has regret in it. And I'm, when you get older, it's really interesting. You, if you don't deal with your stuff in the moment and you sweep it under a rug or whatever it is, it may be gone for now, but guess what? It's coming back. And when it comes back, it's going to be, it's, it's not going to be this little thing you swept under the rug. When it comes back, it's going to have fangs and teeth and claws, and you're going to have to deal with it. And it's a different level. So I adore Larissa. Larissa adores me. I know what it's like to be in my own head in a hotel room by myself, which isn't always the best place to be. And I never wanted her to ask herself or say to herself, I wish I had done something when I had the opportunity. So um, when you love somebody, when you care for somebody, when, when your dreams align, then it becomes even more important to start making those things happen. Um, I've, I've seen Larissa be cast in feature films only to have financing fall away and never get the opportunity. I used this allegory in a different interview uh, earlier today. Um, somebody had said to us, you know, this is kind of like a vanity piece. And I said, no, that's not what it is. What, and I went back to Katherine Hepburn. We all know who Katherine Hepburn is. Back in the 1930s, Katherine Hepburn could not get cast. She was box office poison. Fortunately, I've never been in those. Yeah. We're not that. She was not, she was not getting cast in movies and she was an actress. So what she did is she acquired the rights to the Philadelphia story, which ended up winning, I believe it won Best Picture that year, or something like that. But that is what blew the world open for her. She bought the rights to it. She produced it and she started it to create opportunities for herself. And it turned around her career. Turned around her career. So that's, that's literally what this is. Larissa created this, but she also has in me a, a husband and a partner who wants to burst through that glass ceiling that we've, we've been dealing with and have the world see that Larissa, in this movie, she looks like Hollywood royalty. She wrote a wonderful script, multi-layered, interesting, funny script. And not only that, she supervised the music. She wrote the original song. She sang in it. She painted the Baroque masterpiece that serves as the MacGuffin in the film. Um, she did the rough cut on the edit. Then we did the fine cut. There's just, there's just so much that um, the world needs to know. There, there's something though I do definitely want to stress with your listeners though, especially that ones that dream of doing this. Ego is not enough fuel for this fire. So if you have a dream, you, and, if, and if it's been a, a dream that's been with you a while that just consumes you, like for me, it's been movie making and more storytelling. Than anything, storytelling. You have to be sure you have the right motives and the right reasons behind it. So with this, we I knew because of past projects I'd done, huge, you know, multimedia, theatrical epics, how much time, how much effort, how much energy took five years off my life. This was 10 times more. Every step of the way, and I'm not exaggerating, we are workhorses, we are determined people who've accomplished a lot, but every step of the way was Everest over and over and over again. The entire process, we both felt like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. <laughs> it was endless. And it still is because now we're in marketing and that's, you know, there's never a point where it's like, oh, now it's someone else's problem and I get to ride easy street. No, that's not the case in the modern world, whether you are a 
a self-published or traditionally published author, whether you're a musician, whether you're a filmmaker, no, you are always doing all of the work. Um, but what I was saying is that you have to make sure that if this is a really big dream, if this is an epic sized dream, you have to know what your motivation is. For me, it's being so passionate about this story and loving this story and loving all the characters. If it had the whole, if the whole motivation had just been, I want to look great and I show people how great star. I am. Yeah. First, first of all, I would have been disappointed when you know people didn't rush out by the millions to offer me roles afterwards. Um, but more than that, keeping at it, you know, 12 hours a day on Christmas for, with our composer, you have to be passionate about the story and passionate about giving something to your audience, not taking something from them. So no matter what happens, we've had tons of, you know, positive reviews. We get, you know, the occasional trolls. We get all, you know, sorts of different reactions that we didn't expect to get. But I know in my heart of hearts, I told the best story I could possibly tell that I honestly believe will touch people, make them laugh, make them think, and truly give them a wonderful entertainment. That's what it's about. It really is. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that there's so many different avenues now for people to get their story out there, to get their project out there. Um, you, you mentioned self-published authors. I Last night, I was looking at the pile of books by my nightstand, and they're all by self-published authors, independent press, small press, things that 10 years ago, you were told that were literal poison for your career. You just don't do that. It's a waste of time and money. I'm reading the best books that way now. The best, I said, the, 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 some of the best movies are independent. Some of the best best musicians are just on YouTube now. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I, if for if filmmakers out there, if someone tells you, oh, distribution is the hardest thing to get, no, that was that's 20 thing. years ago. Yeah. Now it's the easiest thing. The toughest thing is actually, first of all, getting your distributor to actually watch your movie. Most distributors won't. It's just product that costs them nothing. They don't have to manufacture DVDs. They're not fighting for shelf space at Blockbuster. So they can just throw it out there. Um, and, but the trouble is getting people to watch it, getting people to pay for your content in any way. Or even pay attention. I mean, when we initially released, we released on the Prime Video Direct platform. And that was a uh, pay-per-view type thing. So you could rent it or buy it. Uh, and it was it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, to rent it was like four ninety nine. To buy it was like twelve ninety nine or something. And um, we uh, obviously we approached our entire network of people to watch and you know support us. And we made a little bit of money that way. But we had a number of people say to us, you know what? Yeah, I'm not going to buy it now. I'll wait for it to come out on the platform so I can watch it for free on Prime. And so when we... Because there's so much to choose from. So there, it's hard to find not only what you as a viewer want to take time to watch or to consume, but, you know, and you get overwhelmed, but, you know, it's like, you feel like you're screaming into the void, where in many ways, these common platforms, if you create a quality, halfway decent piece, it can almost feel like YouTube, where they're competing with millions of other pieces that are decently right. made. So, so the real challenge is getting people to watch. And that's the effort. I mean, that's how we met you. Um, getting people to watch, getting people to care. And the truth is, is that, you know, the only people, the people who care most about our project is Larissa and I. That's it, you know. And then there are some people who have been champions of our film and they are 
very, very active in, in telling the public and sharing information and things like that. Uh, but it's an ongoing effort. So it took us eight months of pre-production, mm -hmm. took us a month of shooting, another eight months of post-production, and now it's out there. And we're literally going to be marketing this movie for the next three or four years. That's how long you're going to be married to a project. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's daunting, but everybody, everybody in the creative world who's trying to... Um, trying to make their mark in the world, whatever it is, writing, art, movies, whatever, you have to realize you're going to be married to these projects for a really long time. So you have you to have love passion. And yeah. it can't be because, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money because you are not. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that you're familiar with a lot of these stats that 80% of the books out there, at least this is what I have read in my research, 80% uh, of the books out there, even traditionally published ones, do not make their money back. They are not a successful. It's that 20%, let alone self-published. So, and so even these traditionally published I think authors- self-published, the success rate is like 5%. But yeah, so even, yeah. but even traditionally published authors, they have to be getting out there and promoting and marketing and doing all these roles that those of us who did not grow up in the last 10 years never assumed we would have to. I think there's always this idea that, oh, I'm an actor. Once I get an agent, I won't have to work hard <laughs> or once, answer. <laughs> once I get a distributor, oh, I can just step away and move on to the next thing. Wrong answer again. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago that you were told that whether you were a filmmaker or an author, you wanted to get a, a professional distributor, be a studio or a publishing house, because the deal was if you had them doing the publicity for you, all you had to do was make your art and they yep. would take care of the business. Exactly. End. It doesn't exactly. exist. And then no. it's not real anymore. It does. So even if you get jackpot lucky and you get an agent who signs you on and you get the big contract, you're still doing the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you really want to waste the time to get somebody else's approval? Or do you just want to get your product out there right now and see who likes it? Luckily for Larissa and I, we have a very discerning approach to everything we do. Uh, like I said earlier, if our name's attached to something, it has to be quality. The, the only thing now is we're doing that on a macro level. So if, if you go into a project and you know that what you've created is marketable, has a value in the marketplace, is valid uh, when it comes to getting people's attention, that gives you a lot more wind in your sails. Whereas, you know, we've, we've had people in the past who, filmmakers who they make projects just to make projects. And there's not a lot of passion there. Uh, for instance, they, there, was a, there was a time where a bunch of people came to us and said, we want to re, like, what was the word? Um, reverse engineer a script. So in other words, we want to make something Pandering that will automatically an have an audience, but we're going to make it for this specific audience we think is underserved which sounds logical, but sadly we have found that that didn't pan out because they were not specifically passionate about this subject. Yeah, it was So it's hard enough to be a success when you are passionate about it, let alone when you're trying to taste an easy buck or an easy, what's perceived as an easy audience. I've heard of critiquing a script. I've heard of analyzing a script. I've never heard of reverse engineering a script and the very concept seems a bit off-putting to me? It does. Yeah. It did for me. I mean, I think it's that whole idea of creating product 
which I mean, all I, it is always a balance between creating something that's marketable and something that is truly a work of passion and artistry, right? I mean, you can't have just one without the other. So I think that that is when the case when you're seeing someone that is just chasing the marketability instead of what really makes their heart sing. Yeah. So like if a production company came to us and said, hey, we've got a script and we would like you to produce and direct, that would be for us, that would be product, that would be a payday, that would be something. I mean, we would do it to our highest level of ability, of course. But at the same time, it's not something that we came up with that we're passionate about. So there's, there's a difference in stuff. And uh, I think the real key is coming up with the kind of material, whether you wrote it or not, whether Larissa wrote it or I wrote it, whoever, coming up with the kind of uh, passion in whatever you're doing. So right now I'm working, uh, doing very preliminary pre-production on a project that I'm very passionate about that somebody else wrote. And uh, if I am able to get the rights to that script, I will throw myself headlong into making it the very best that it can be. But that's always a challenge. Who do you work with that can inspire that passion? Who do you work with that supports your passion? How do you come up with things that allow you to sustain that passion and energy over a really long time frame? But what the one thing that I see is that, especially with newbie writers, is not being discerning enough with your work. So I think that that is something like over the years, I, you know, if you criticized my screenplays years ago, the, the early drafts, it would have been, oh my God, stab wound, I can't take it. But now I see that those people were right. So I now have my trusted readers over the years of getting beat up in this industry enough of learning, of being experienced enough. I've been able to in many ways um, and also working on myself with philosophy and personal development, spirituality, I've been able to, I think in many ways, try to take my ego out of my work to at least some degree. So that, but for the, for the best um, interest of the work, for, so it can be the best it can be, I allow it to be criticized and critiqued by people I trust. That's the key, that's the key. You've got to have a circle that you trust implicitly because like I'm, I'm Larissa's muse. Uh, Larissa, I let Larissa complete the script and she gives it to me and I'll go through it. I'll edit it for grammar, punctuation, whatever, but I'll also edit it for, does the scene work? Is this, I understand this is supposed to be funny. It's not, let, let's buff this up. Let's eliminate that, do all that. People joke that they're their own worst critics. I joke and I say, no, CJ's my worst critic. <laughs> but I mean that in a good way, because if I'm too emotionally attached to something I've been working on for nine months, a year, he is able to, to honestly, almost like fast forward the clock and say, yeah, this really works. This not so much. And that's a place I would have reached in my own evaluation of my work a few months down the line once I was less emotionally attached to it. And I can do that for her right away. So yeah, you need a, you need a very tight-knit circle of creatives that uh, help you become a better artist. Let me ask one really important question before we start to wrap up and get the audience in the direction of your movie. Okay. You need this trusted circle. Is it a good idea or a terrible idea if you be related by blood to them? Well, that the answer is it depends. I mean, you know, I have siblings that uh, I don't trust. <laughs> you know, I have siblings that I trust implicitly. You know, it comes down to it comes down to individuality and where you feel comfortable. Ultimately, 
Um, Larissa and I have a partnership. We've been together for 17 years. We've never had a fight. I mean, we don't argue. I mean, we disagree on things, but when it comes to when it comes to the creative process, we have each other, and that's more than most people have, which is great. Uh, and then there's other people out there that we will give. It's up to. It's literally up to us individually as to who gets a vote. And I've always said, you know, the people who really get a vote, the important people are the person you sleep with and the person who signs your paycheck. And then, of course, on top of that, you know, the people that you choose to give that uh, gravitas toward. And there aren't that many. You know, I mean, if you've got a circle of 10 people that you really, really trust and, and, and consider true, true friends, you are a blessed human being because most people that doesn't exist. I think you have to look at motivations, not only your own motivation. Are you asking for constructive criticism or validation? Yeah. So is it, do you want your ego stroke really, really be hard with yourself? Or do you know this is not perfect and I need help to make it better? And I want it to be better no matter how much it might hurt my ego. And I want that help from people I trust. So, so I, I, you know, for, for us, that trust is there the way it wouldn't have been many years ago because we've been through so much over the years. I know when I hand a script to CJ and I say, okay, this is done. You have an idea of what I I'm trying to accomplish with this particular piece because I might not give him specifics, but he has an idea. Um, I want your feedback. So I know though that there's, he's not going to be blowing smoke up my skirt. His motivation isn't, oh, just to make me feel good because that doesn't help me. That doesn't help the work. And, but it isn't either, oh, I will need to feel superior because I don't like my own life. This issue can even find with writing teachers sometimes, someone who might not realize that they've become jaded or whatever it is. Um, so looking at that motivation, does this person have the, the background and the know-how? Do they understand stories or music or whatever it is that I'm trying to create? Do I trust their judgment? And are they able to articulate that in a way that helps me? And I think you can only tell that over time. Yeah. So for me with, with CJ, it was like, okay, he'd give me feedback. Maybe I didn't agree with that at the time, but like I, I alluded to earlier, a few months later, I'm like, yeah, you know, he's right. In which case he, he's someone I'm going to go back to again. Um, and in our case, uh, you know, he's directed my work so many times. And he's able to see in my scripts and communicate that to the actors without me even telling him what my intentions are, what those relationships are. And that's why I know we're on the same spectrum. I don't speak to hear myself speak, you know what I mean? Uh, if I have something that I really have to say, especially when Marissa comes to me with an artistic thing, it, it, it's been a process for us too. At first, I was very leery of giving criticism to my spouse because we sleep together, you know, and that creates a, a different dynamic. But we have an understanding that uh, I don't, I'm not going to give criticism that's unwarranted. And critical criticism is actually something that artists really need to learn. I remember uh, as an artist when I was younger, um, in art school, constructive, constructive criticism was very difficult for me to accept at first, but it's a, it's a muscle that needs to be exercised. And as an artist, you have to get that kind of feedback, especially if you want to create something that's commercial. I mean, there are certain things that are wonderful art, but they're never going to be commercial. Um, what we're doing is show business. So half of it is show, the other half is business. And we have to be mindful of that. And I think you also have to look at what your audience appreciates. So for example, a, a genre book, um, a genre screenplay, 
I ask the people who love that genre and who are going to be your audience, or hopefully, you know, filmmakers and other um, uh, other colleagues that you have that have worked in that genre, because they're the ones that are going to appreciate it the most and give you the feedback you need. So, I, for example, if someone is, um, you know, all they watch and all they love and all they write and all they do is horror, I realize, okay, they might have some interesting insights in my script, but they're not my target audience. They probably aren't going to appreciate certain aspects of my writing that I love as much as someone who enjoys romance and comedy. So I always think of, I kind of try to think of it that way too. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, CJ, Larissa, thank you so much for being here. I've enjoyed it. Now, I'm going to put everything that we've talked about in the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com, links to the movie on Amazon and Tubi. Are there any other places we could send people to check out your work and your adventures on the internet? So if you uh, t- type in Facebook or is it Instagram? Instagram, Instagram yeah. it's at mistressmaneatermovie. Or at mistressmaneatermovie, and that will bring you to our Facebook page. Uh, if you interact with us, we will certainly interact back. We're not snobby that way. Um, so if you like our movie, please tell your friends about it. Please. Uh, the way that independent filmmakers find success is literally a groundswell of support, word of mouth, viral type stuff. That's what we're shooting for. And at the very least, check out the trailer. I think that if you like the trailer, or at least in trades, oh, you're you, gonna love the you movie. will love the movie. So yeah, if you like it, tell your friends, uh, leave us a rating and review on Amazon Prime or IMDb. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the better position they give us in the thumbnail carousel. So when you're surfing, looking for something to watch, you wanna be closer to the front, obviously, than buried in the back or not even show up. So uh, yeah, so if you could do that, tell your friends, leave us a rating and review. The Misadventures of Mistress Mandy. And if you hate it, tell all your enemies to watch it. Okay, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been a Thank pleasure, you, Aaron. Thanks to all your listeners. I would like to thank CJ and Larissa for being my guests today, and I would like to thank you for listening. Before you stop this podcast, I want to let you know This movie that we're talking about is available right now. I've seen it. I love it. I highly recommend it. As of now, it's available on Amazon Prime as well as Tubi. It may be available in other places by the time you get this. I strongly recommend giving it a shot. Look it up. It's on the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.